Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Messy City Podcast. Kevin Klinkenberg back here with you, and I have one of my uh, good friends in the world of new urbanism uh, here with me today. I'm very fortunate to have uh, Dan Parolik with uh, Opticos Design. Uh, been excited to have Dan on here for a while and, and uh, talk about things. Dan, uh, how are you doing? Kevin, thanks for having me. I'm, do I'm doing great. Um, yeah, doing some really exciting things and look forward to uh, diving into a conversation with you about all things urbanism related. I, I, I kind of feel like we could uh, we could almost do this like Joe Rogan style and go for three or four hours. You know, <laughs> I don't think that would be hard yes. for us, yeah. um, but we'll, we'll try to uh, keep it down uh, to about an hour and we'll probably just uh, have to do this again a couple of times. I just there's so much that uh, we could talk about. Um, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> So Dan, for uh, for those who don't know you very well, uh, I mean, you have this fantastic uh, firm in Berkeley, California, and you do work all over the country. People probably think that you're some sort of Bay Area elitist. Um, why, why don't you tell people the truth? Yeah, yeah, that's that's really good. Um, and it's it's interesting is uh, because we do work all across the country and I'm always often traveling to give presentations missing middle housing, um, all, all corners of the country is like, people realize how approachable I am. I have that Midwestern sensibility. Um, I, yeah, I grew up in a small Midwestern town, uh, population 20,000, Columbus, Nebraska. Um, one of the many Columbuses in the, in the Midwest, <laughs> but, um, the one that nobody knows about, but it's, um, actually where I first experienced good urbanism. Um, when I was growing up, the the downtown was super vibrant, and there was you know Sears, J.C. Penney's, two hardware stores, lots of restaurants. Uh, the bike shop was there, which was most important for me and the the neighborhood gang. That you know we'd get on our bikes and ride across town to downtown. And um, also, my great grandmother lived in a a duplex a block and a half from Main Street. So, like that was my introduction to to urbanism and placemaking. And didn't realize it at the time, obviously, but um, very foundational. And um, so, you know, we work in big cities, um, but we also understand uh, small towns as well. And so actually, um, there's a good core of our work where we have purposefully decided to keep working in small towns because a lot of those places um, kind of need, need the work the most and don't have the planning staff. So... And Stefan Pellegrini, my one of my two other business partners, is super passionate about small town work, and um, he's kind of worked up and down the Central Valley with uh, what was, used to be the local government commission on state funded projects. But so it's yeah, we're um, it's interesting. I think people find us very approachable, right? Very unassuming, um, and. Uh, a lot of times are kind of taken aback when they find out that we're based in the Bay area. And yeah. I do want to say we did uh, just last year, opened a Chicago office. Mm -hmm. um, I was super excited about that. Um, Jennifer Settle, who uh, worked with us a number of years ago and moved back to the Midwest for personal reasons um, is running that shop. So it's, uh, it's exciting to sort of be branching out like that. Yeah. That's, uh, it's great to have a have a footprint for you. I think in multiple locations. Uh, yeah. So what you know, we met uh, almost 25 years ago now, which is <laughs> really shocking to think about. But, <laughs> um, and actually, the first thing we worked on together was in a small town. It was in Truckee, California, uh, mm -hmm. a, a very unusual small town in many ways. But uh, I, I remember, like right away, we kind of connected, um, started talking about. Uh, what later, you know, you developed into missing middle uh, housing. Uh, and and I think both of us had this fascination with, you know, building types uh, and things that were out of the single family or large apartment building type. And I even remember, you know, spending a few times with you in Berkeley and going up and down all the different corridors and neighborhoods in, in Berkeley and you really talking at length about the different uh, missing middle types that you saw then. So it's it's interesting because I feel like that's become a big part of your work today, but it's something that you've actually been talking about for almost three decades now. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, so a couple of things is um, when I was in graduate school at, at UC Berkeley, so I have a 
undergraduate architecture degree from Notre Dame, which obviously te- te- taught me all these foundations, um, practiced for a number of years in New York City, and then decided I wanted to work at a neighborhood and city scale. So um, I found this amazing programming group of mentors at UC Berkeley um, to basically supplement my design background with like um, an understanding of how to how to make get things implemented. And I I just imagine I can remember doing studio pinups with Alan Jacobs of of the great streets notoriety. And um, he'd be like, good design, but how is this going to get implemented? I'm like, oh, shit. Like, I don't know. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Like, um, so um, but I also did a really interesting study there called uh, called the perception of density. And me and two of my um, classmates actually, this is kind of where a lot. Well, at when I in undergraduate, um, uh, I was doing a studio with Michael Lykoudis, who was the, the the dean for a long time, but he was just teaching studio when I, when I was there in the mid early to mid nineties. And he took us out to uh, Madison, Indiana, and he had us document building types, civic space types, street t- types. And it was the first time we had done that in a studio and it was just eye-opening to me. I was like, this is where like the light bulb went off is like, this is, this is what I want to be doing. And then in graduate school, I did this perception of density study where we took groups of people, three different groups of people out to three different neighborhoods in the Bay area that all had the same density on paper, but felt very different to us to try to get to the essence of like, what is it about the built environment that's impacting people's perception of the density? And obviously typology is a part of that. And then um, for my my thesis project, my graduate thesis project, um, I entered a design competition called Housing the Next 10 Million, which was how, it was sponsored by the Great Valley, Cent- uh, Great Valley Center in, um, it was like, how is the Central Valley of California going to grow and accommodate, uh, you know, the growth without impacting its agricultural economy and character? And I actually took Modesto, which is um, sort of outer Bay Area, a uh, small town, that very sort of very much similar to like the town I grew up in. And I did a comprehensive plan, but then I picked a sub area at the edge and I did a uh, plan for a new urbanist sort of TND project, but then mm-hmm. I also wrote a form-based code <laughs> with typologies in it yeah. that had like the full range of missing middle typologies. And um, part of the inspiration was I remember looking through Peter Katz's book, The New Urbanism, and just studying that and studying it over and over and all the different projects. And then um, there was a book called Towns and Town Making Principles. Um, and Bill Leonard's wrote a chapter on building types and I studied that. And so, yeah, it's, so our, 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 in our very first public, so I was fortunate. I was able to start my practice immediately after graduating. And that's when we met and, um, we worked on, you know, several projects together in Chico and Truckee and, um, so those had missing middle typologies like you and me and, you know, John Anderson and other groups of people that were brought in and out of those projects were thinking about this. And um, our first public sector project that is happening about that same time, sort of the, the, the late 90s, is we were hired to do a master plan for Isla Vista, which is the unincorporated community next to UC Santa Barbara. And it was it's a grid of about... I think like six blocks by eight blocks that's completely surrounded by open uh, preserved wetlands on three sides and the coast on the other side, sorry, the university on the fourth side. So, um, but we, we, we did a revitalization strategy and wrote a form based code with the missing middle typologies in it. Um, And it had actually had three types. It had a, a, a cottage court, a side court and just a courtyard type. And I remember at the time, um, the, the Santa Barbara County planning staff thought we were completely nuts. They had no idea what we were. It was like, we were speaking a different language. So Stefan had to take every lot size that existed in Isla Vista and do a three, an axiometric drawing of how the type would adapt on the variety of different, like, so we had this catalog of like, okay, they're like, how can we, 
possibly only allow three types. I'm like, well, it's not allowing three types. The types evolve based. So anyway, so yeah, so we've been doing this for a while. It's, um, you were like on, on version like 24.0, I guess at this point, <laughs> right? Not, yeah. not 1.0. So it's, it's, um, we're still, still super excited about it. And, um, uh, still passionate about it. So it's, 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 and we're, we're, we're excited to see it having a real impact mm-hmm. at, a, at a national and even really international scale. Now it's, it's missing middles really become a movement, which sort of above and beyond what we ever expected it, the impact to be. Yeah. It's funny to, to think back and, and imagine that that graduate work almost like laid out the, uh, the next two or three decades of professional work that, that you were going to undertake. Yeah. Um, so I know that you've always used Berkeley and the neighborhood where you live and, and neighborhoods around it as, as sort of a source of inspiration you know, for a lot of uh, just urban design and for missing middle housing. Um, I, there's a lot of things that I'd like to touch on today, uh, but I was curious, you know, one of the things um, we corresponded with a little bit was talking about like what's going on in Berkeley today and how that's uh, impacting uh, the life in the city and um uh, maybe the affordability of it, the, the attainability of it. I wonder if you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, some of the challenges. And I mean, there's obviously opportunities. It's a great community, uh, but what what are you seeing that's going on today in Berkeley? Yeah, this is this is um, something I never expected to see in my lifetime. Where, right for the last twenty plus years, there's been. I mean we all were, were trying to get cities prepared for the demand for walkable urbanism. And 20 years ago, the cities were like, why, why would we spend time and energy doing that? And of course, they've been overwhelmed by the demand, right? And I always tell people I'm not an economist, but high demand and low supply related to walkable urbanism equals very high housing prices. Um, and so what I'm seeing in places like Berkeley and unfortunately it's large parts of the country now that I would have never expected housing prices to be so high, even large parts of Florida, just really attractive places to live. Um, a couple of things we're seeing is like um, from a perspective of like trying to, t- trying to run and manage a small business. Um, even for us who are offering sort of professional salaries, uh, we, we're having a really hard time recruiting people from outside the Bay Area to work with us because this, the sticker shock of, of cost of living. And so um, part of the reason for us opening a Chicago office, right, is, is like we can now, if we're recruiting somebody, we can say, well, there's a couple of options you can come up come live and work in Berkeley, or you can move to Chicago, which has a much uh, better sort of cost of living um, and delivers good urbanism as well. But the other aspect that I'm seeing and that I'm not seeing any discussion about is, you know, we stayed in Berkeley because of the food culture, all the great local small businesses, the creative businesses, and over the course of the last 20 years, we've just been seeing that disappearing, right? Is because nobody can, aff- a, no small business can afford to lease a space mm-hmm. and to take the risk of like the cost is too high to take a risk to start a business. And so all of that, that reason for wanting to be in a place, all those amenities are disappearing. And so I wonder at what point it sort of tips. And it's like, wow, like, why would I be spending this much money to live in a Berkeley when I can move to uh, Des Moines, Iowa, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, And there's actually probably more of those amenities there now because somebody can afford to open a, a creative restaurant or a creative small business or a creative shop that sells the things they're making. And we saw this in Cincinnati when we worked there 10 years ago, right? It's like there's somebody in the back making shoes and they're selling them up front. It's like an old model, but uh, good urban places foster that. Um, and I just, it's, it's super interesting because 
like I just I just wonder at what point these these super attractive places start losing people. I think they already are, but like when it tips that threshold, when like all of a sudden, like what, why would we want to be in a Berkeley, California, or or like a Seattle? You know, yeah. when we can we can get get just as good of urbanism and maybe not maybe even better um, vibrancy and local businesses in a different place. And like I said, I never expected to see that in my lifetime, that sort of impact. But I think it's uh, really important for all of us to be thinking about um, in our practices and discussions. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, to, a, to a small degree, I think we, we're starting to see that in Kansas City in a, in a couple of ways. One is obviously what's happened in our own urban core has been just wonderful over the last couple yeah. of decades with yeah. uh, transformation and the willingness of people to live in the city. So that, that's one aspect. But the other is we have seen some of that outflow from places like California, that some of the really expensive markets. And yeah. um, I mean, my wife and I now, we have uh, multiple uh, friends, uh, like, you know, parents at our school and stuff like that, that, that within the last uh, three or four years left California and came to Kansas City. And in large part, it was because of feeling priced out of those markets that they were in. Uh, I mean, we have we have a trickle compared to like the people who go to Colorado or Idaho or, or something like that. But sure, it, it still it still happens. Um, and, I, and I think there's a point in there that, that you make that's really important that you know, I don't feel like in the new urbanism we've talked enough about, uh, which is uh, that relationship um, between uh, the variety of building types uh, that are possible in a community and how that makes uh, affordability of all different kinds, um, you know, attainable to so many people. So, and it's not just, um, you know, the affordability of maybe buying a single family house, but uh, renting uh, a small apartment, it's owning a duplex or a triplex, but also when you have enough variety of commercial space, the ability to lease in, you know, relatively inexpensive commercial space. you know, and I, and I know you've done, done, documented some thinking and done some work on that front. I think it's really important and it's, um, yeah, we don't, I don't think we talk about it enough of like, what's the role of the main street, the neighborhood main street. And, um, it's always a challenge to, to make that happen. But I think, um, there's a lot of creative thinking happening in that front. I was, um, a couple of weeks ago and I was in Atlanta and um, the, there's a the neighborhood that's adjacent to the former Brave Stadium, just mm-hmm. south of downtown, um, was seeing a ton of, I think, university. Uh, one of the universities are now using the stadium, and it, and it spurred all this private sector investment around it. And there was an existing, an older neighborhood, Main Street, that I would imagine 10 years ago was probably boarded up and mostly just vacant buildings. But as part of the development strategy, the developers hired a group to actually program that main street. And it was amazing. Like I hung out there, I had lunch there. I met with some people there and I'm like, wow, this like, this is, they understood the value of investing in that main street as the amenity, right? For Mm -hmm. the rest of their hundreds of units of development, maybe even thousands that were in progress happening around it. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's critical and, um, it, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see kind of where, where that goes. It's, it's like, um, you know, in the media, you see all this conversation about this polarized conversation about, oh, people are moving out of cities and moving to the suburbs. And and that's not what I'm seeing. I'm seeing, you're seeing some of that, obviously, but I think just as many people are moving from the cores of cities like a San Francisco to great streetcar neighborhoods or small towns, right? That neighborhood scale, that two and three stories, because, you know, you get a little bit more elbow room, but it can deliver the, uh, the, benefits and amenities of the walkable urbanism um that people are people want and even more so the younger generations are really looking for and and demanding well it's an it's interesting we we talk uh all the time you know locally about you know what's going on with development issues and 
some of those macro trends and, and micro trends. But I think I think you make an important point there. And, and it, it's also the context is so interesting today because, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, um, if you wanted to move, if for some reason you felt like you were um, paying too much money in, a, in an urban location or uh, maybe the schools didn't work for you, maybe you were worried about crime, who knows what, um, and you wanted to move to a suburban location or an exurban location, uh, most of those places didn't really offer any of the walkable amenities of your urban area. But now, uh, with what's happened over the last couple of decades, uh, and so many suburban communities have um, jumped on the bandwagon of trying to have some, at least some modest level of walkability here and there, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's a whole different context now, and people can find more of that um, than they would have ever before. And it's it's an interesting competitive uh, landscape for cities. Yeah, and I actually feel like my sense is what's what's has been happening is the Kansas cities and the Des Moines have been sort of sneaking up on people and like just very quietly becoming better and better places that people are discovering. Yeah. But I think I think the next next iteration and sort of the mid to longer term is I think and I see this, you see this happening too, but it's, I think the small towns are going to see a resurrection and revitalization because, you know, somebody might've grown up in a small Midwestern town or South or Southeast and moved away to a big city and, you know, developed a skill set. And they, they're like, well, why wouldn't I move back to my hometown and buy a main street building Hmm. and incubate my business in it. Right. And do something really creative. And I think, I think that's the that's really the future of where urbanism's going. It's the small town, um, especially with remote work. Obviously, is a big piece of right. you know more people can just don't need to be in the office, and um, so I, I'm pretty excited about that. Actually, like I think a lot of these towns, these smaller towns that have struggled for a really long time, um, are are going to see some reinvestment and some some energy sort of re-injected back into them. And I would imagine that I also see like younger people taking um, positions as elected officials, right. Mm-hmm. Which is making a difference. Um, sort of demanding that the cities prepare themselves, even the smaller ones right. for, you know, removing all those barriers that we've been trying to get cities to remove in their zoning and planning and just policy. So um it's exciting to see. Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more, and I think that's a that's a huge trend we're not talking very much about, and the impact on small towns uh, all over the country. It used to be that we would talk about maybe small towns that were within like a, a very short commute shed of a major city, and yeah. there are you know there are hundreds of those around the country that have really thrived in the last few decades. But uh, I can I can absolutely see um, that extending further uh, over the next decade or two, I had the opportunity to speak last year at the Missouri Main Streets Conference, which was just, it's one of those, like, it's a group of, like, Main Street organizations and downtown organizations, yeah. mostly for, you know, small towns in Missouri, and and that was kind of the message that I sent to them, and I felt like, you know, this is, um, this is your window of opportunity, uh, and uh, there's a lot of macro stuff that's changing right now. There are probably more people thinking about small towns now than they uh, were, you know, ever were 10, 20, or 30 years ago. And this is, the, this is the window of time to think about how do you capitalize on that? How do you take advantage of it and provide, you know, the, there, there's a certain sort of small town lifestyle that people idealize that they may be looking for, but how do you do that and actually have that uh, idyllic small town character that, uh, yeah, that people really want. Well, and there's a tremendous amount of diversity in a lot of those small towns now, right? From people from all over the world are are moving to those small towns, yeah. and they may actually be minority white at this mm-hmm. point. A lot of them, and what what like the 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 town my dad grew up in, Schuyler, Nebraska, which has a big meatpacking plant as mm-hmm. kind of one of the big economic generators. Um, large Latino population over the last 25 years. And, you know, that main street was very vibrant when I was growing up too. I was on my grandfather's farm and we'd like on a Saturday at the end of the day, go downtown and see a movie or get an ice cream cone. 
and then it went into a state of disrepair, um, sort of late 90s, early aughts. And but the Latino population now has opened up businesses like some of the best food you can get. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm just amazed by it. So there's also that aspect of like the culture that can be that exists in these small towns. That's super interesting that you kind of envision as a big city Mm -hmm. um, thing historically right but it's it's now exists in all these small towns which is super interesting yeah it's funny there's a kind of a similar phenomenon here even obviously you see it within big metro areas too but i think about kansas city kansas which is often the like forgotten stepsister in the metro area here um you know as as uh, some of the original like european immigrant descendants started moving out uh, over the last 40 or 50 years a lot of the inner neighborhoods really uh, fell into disrepair and the commercial streets did too. And in the last two decades, they've all been repopulated by largely by Mexican and Central American immigrants. Yeah. And uh, it's remarkable what's happening there now. And, and, and you're right. I mean, the, the food's incredible. The culture is lively. People are excited. They're, they're renovating properties. They're buying properties. Uh, and it's it's made a huge difference uh, in that community, a huge positive difference. And and this, they didn't have any money, so they didn't tear anything down. Right. right. <laughs> like so, so everything's still pretty intact, which is which is awesome. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, it's it's interesting. Like the mentality in those little towns historically was such that they they put no value in the upper floors of those main street buildings. I remember. My, my parents still live back in, in the small town I grew up in, and occasionally I'll like go look at a building that's for sale in downtown mm-hmm. as my hobby when I'm when I'm there visiting. And I remember a few years ago um, looking at a, a little two-story, 50-foot-wide building, and the realtor showed me the ground floor. And he's like, well, would you like to see anything else? I'm like, well, aren't you going to show me the upper floor? And he's like, oh, this building doesn't have an upper floor. The, the realtor didn't even know that there was a second floor in this building because it hadn't been used for you know three or four decades or more. And he was shocked that I'm like, I'm an architect. I'm pretty sure there's 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 another floor up there. Yeah, I see two stories whole, in this building. There's a whole row of windows. And, and like he eventually found his keys to get us up to the second floor. But like that mentality of those, a lot of those towns was there's only value in the ground floor. Um, You're starting to see um, some investment in those upper floors. Um, In, in my, in my hometown, it's actually, I've seen some Airbnbs actually mostly. Um, so, So it's, it's interesting to see that. And it's part of that transition of, uh, and also seeing those downtowns as a neighborhood and not a central business district, right? That was the, uh, I, I still can envision that sign on the highway in Columbus, Nebraska, that says that direction to the central business district mm-hmm. is like, who wants to go to the central business district? Like, I want to go to downtown, right? Yeah. And so it's like um, part of this this shift in mentality is, hey, your downtown should be seen as a neighborhood, not as the central business district, because historically people lived there. Sure, people worked there. There were businesses there, but it's, it should be a neighborhood just as much as it is a, a destination for commercial yeah. services and amenities. It was such a it was such a twentieth century kind of approach to thinking about cities <laughs> yeah. that you know, yeah, you know, the, they're all fragmented yeah. into these different districts, and that's the business district. So. Well, and, and so the, the duplex my great-grandmother lived in, which I said was it's a block and a half from Main Street. Um, when she passed away, um, the house got sold and it got scraped. And the, the new owner built what the zoning asked for, which was a single-story suburban office building with a big parking lot around it. Mm. And it's like, this is a place that also right now is having an affordable housing discussion and like hey you tore down <laughs> mm-hmm. most of your missing middle because that's what your zoning asked for yeah. and, and requires and those those smaller places in particular right don't have the resources to make some of those changes usually so well i think that's a good segue to to dive into the missing middle a little bit more it's one of the mm-hmm. one of the conversations that we've had a, a lot over the years has been thinking about who are who are the actual people that are going to live in missing middle housing? Who are, who are the people who are going to buy it? Who's going to make it happen? Uh, and 
I know there's no one answer to all that, but you've done as much work as anybody in that area. And I'm curious, you've, you've had this really wild, diverse, you know, set of clients that have tried to do it, everything from like, you know, the mom and pops to, you know, clients um, like our mutual friend in, in Omaha, uh, yeah. who is, you know, basically building an entire missing middle community himself. But it's, I'm just curious, I mean, you've probably had a chance to think about this a lot. You know, who do you, who do you think are the, the people who actually build or own or, or make this happen for missing middle housing? Yeah, it's um, what we've discovered to date is it's it hasn't been the, the bigger production builders. Um, they're just too slow to change. And we've we've tried to work with them, but they just won't. They're not willing to innovative enough for us to spend time <laughs> mm-hmm. working with them. That being said, um, a lot of our clients are building at scale. Um, the, the Jerry Reimer building, the missing middle neighborhood in Papillion, Nebraska, the Omaha Metro, that'll be 600 missing middle units when done. It's about 300 units completed to date, and it's outperforming every other multifamily project in the Omaha Metro right now. Um, and, uh, there's the, the cul-de-sacs, right? Mm-hmm. The car-free community we designed in Tempe. That's now, I think it's about 150 units, mostly completed. Mm-hmm. And the first round of residents will move in next year. Sorry, next year, next month, oh, um, great. in May. And, um, uh, it, it's kind of, it's what we've found is that it's the people who are, um, taking informed risk. Like they're, they've done their, they're not just going, oh, we want missing middle. They're, they're doing their own thoughtful analysis of the market, but not in a conventional way. Like none of our projects rely on a conventional market study. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's what we kind of tell people first, if you're going to rely on a conventional market study, like it's not going to tell you that you need this because <laughs> nobody's done it. Um, uh, but so our clients like always are, are really thoughtful and understand their market and understand sort of that target market and who we need to design for. But that being said is there is so much need and so much demand for missing middle that I feel like you could build 20 different types of missing middle projects on most of these locations and these sites and they would all succeed, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? They'd all be successful. It could be for sale. It could be for rent. It could be a mix. It could be stacked units. It could be not stacked unit, fee simple units. And, um, you know, when, when, when I wrote the first article about missing middle housing in 2011 for the smart growth network in the, in this publication, we, we initially framed this as meeting the demand, right? Cause there was a proven growing demand for walkable urbanism, but that can translate directly into a demand for non-single family housing types or small lot single family. And, um, but as over the last five to seven years, it's become clear that in addition to meeting the demand for this, there's a need for this as part of the attainable housing delivery, right? It's because you can no longer, in many markets, you can no longer build a single family detached house and sell it at a price point that an entry level buyer can afford. Right. Almost no market almost no market. So, um, uh, so, so all of a sudden you need to be thinking about, you know, missing middle types, duplex, fourplex, cottage courts. And unfortunately there's just tremendous, there's still this day and age, tremendous zoning barriers as a start. Um, there's a lot of barriers, but zoning as a starting point, um, uh, that it's kind of an, when, when I, when we wrote our form based code book now, 16 years ago, I think it's been like, I'd hoped by this point in time that there'd be so many seasoned practitioners delivering really great zoning reform work that I'd never have to do it again. (laughs) 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 And I could just do the really fun stuff and the, the, right, the architecture and the, the planning. But um, unfortunately, the reality of the situation is there's still only a small handful of practitioners who really understand, especially this typology, this range of typologies, and how how do you enable it in a zoning code? Um, 
it's it's kind of an art in some ways that unfortunately not enough people know about and very few people are being trained in yeah um, right that's it all it all comes back to and i think this is one of the bullet points of when we were sort of going back and forth of what we should discuss is like ultimately like academia needs to change in architecture and planning schools and engineering schools right to to get us on the right route to enabling and legalizing walkable urbanism countrywide yeah i i want to come back to that uh, yeah. first I, I have a couple a little bit more about on the missing middle because yeah that's great uh, um so it's interesting to me, you know, when I think about like the uh, um, the uh, was a Prairie Crossing, the project, the Jerry's project in uh, Papillion. Prairie. Well, it's it's Prairie Queen is what Prairie we Queen. call it. It's yeah. called Bungalows on the Lake by the marketing team, and I just okay. I I can't say that name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like so, so. It's 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 yeah. Prairie Queen. So there's a Prairie Queen and cul de sac uh, are. Uh, really interesting, you know, well-done communities, but essentially like single developer uh, projects, substantial, you know, pretty, yeah. pretty large projects. So missing middle in terms of the building types, but uh, it's sort of a large increment. And I know that Jerry Reimer, who built Prairie Queen, he started out just buying like individual uh, yeah. buildings in Omaha um, and, and then building up his portfolio that way. So I, I, I'm still curious about, you know, how how we think about um, greater adoption of uh, missing middle types and, and people actually buying them. And I'd just like to have you react to this thought that I've had. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that I have talked to a lot of planners about locally is that, um, you know, the reason, it, 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 one of the reasons, in my opinion, that we see so much, so many house flippers in a given market is because flipping a house basically has no barriers to it. There's a lot of supply of single family houses and there's almost no regulatory barriers to doing it. It's, you know, in, in many cases, you don't even need a permit uh, at all. Yep. Uh, and, and I have challenged them to say, you know, if we want more missing middle, we need to make it as easy as flipping a house uh, because it's probably a lot of the same types of investors, sort of mom and pop people either doing it on the side or um, maybe they're making a career out of it. Maybe it's like a Jerry Reimer who starts that way and built himself up, but it's it's a different class of investors than like a large uh, developer. Yeah, it's it, it's um, Karen uh, often says that she thinks there should be a reality or a, a, a home improvement show called Flip the Fourplex, right? Yes, like, yes. Right, like there should be somebody doing that. Um, uh, so it's 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 super interesting when sort of historically in our practice, and even when we initially sort of formally sort of branded the missing middle housing uh, concept is we had, we were initially thinking about that incremental sort of one lot at a time uh, scale. And I think that's really important. And that's actually what's happening mostly, like the small local builder or the realtor who is becoming a developer or the architect who's becoming a developer or the civil engineer, actually, we see a lot of civil engineers sort of transitioning into developers. Like there's a, there's a lot of that happening, but you don't hear about it because the impact is pretty small. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's important to continue to foster and to make it as easy for a fourplex as it is for a single, a single family home for sure. Um, what we kind of, what we just, we kind of um, realized that, we could have a bigger impact with our developer clients if we sort of demonstrated this at scale. And I don't, it's not that we think everybody needs to be doing this at scale. I think it needs to be a combination of, hey, that one lot at a time or that that small builder buying four lots on a, on a block and sort of building one at a time. Um, but I think the, when we, we actually, struggled to commit to doing the Prairie Queen project because it was a isolated greenfield site with no transit. And we had actually, as a business, committed to not doing greenfield projects for hmm. almost 10 years. But what we realized is it was a big enough site to demonstrate, and it was going to be all missing middle, so it could demonstrate how a missing middle business model could 
compete and, and out-compete a conventional garden apartment development model. And that's, that's what it's proving. And I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. And that's why like we can go into the ULI, you know, conference and talk about this and people are like, wow, like this is, this is, this is viable at scale. And um, that project in particular has been so successful is that we're, we're actually about to launch an online sales portal for the plans of that particular project and we're calling it the missing middle neighborhood kit Hmm. and because we realize that we need to maximize our impact and sort of just help take this to scale where we can we can sell those plans um, and make them available through construction documents for a licensing fee and that it's it's not an old it's not a new model right there's there's a lot of house plan Mm -hmm businesses but what i've realized is like most of them stop at duplex because of building code right (laughs) Mm -hmm. or licensing and then some of them go up to like fourplex but i I, there's hardly any if any at all that like go up to eightplex or tenplex Mm -hmm. and so we've been vetting this for the last year and a half and Actually, in the next couple of months, we're gonna we're gonna launch launch this um, online sales portal. So that's 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 super exciting. So uh, that leads me to to ask you to think about, especially those couple of projects. I know you've worked on others that had some scale to it, but yeah, what are are there some lessons learned from the architecture side, from the design side, uh, that uh, you would carry forward from from especially those or uh, you know, working at, at trying to create more of a repetitive model like that yeah. for missing middle. Absolutely. And like even the, the daybreak muse homes, which, mm-hmm. you know, have won a handful of awards and it's still one of my favorite projects. And, um, that type was originally designed for sale within the larger master plan community of daybreak. And our client was able to sell it for about 30 grand less than their, their tuck under townhouse. So mm-hmm. it, it, it to us it's like so right my architecture career started working at these super high end architecture firms right mm-hmm. and so like we were doing things like i worked on a federal courthouse uh baseball stadium but then i was like designing john bon jovi's house michael <laughs> eisner's house like there's like no budget and so like we're doing good design but to me it wasn't um it it wasn't i wasn't excited about it. It wasn't having an impact. So, but I, I, I learned good design. So part of our, in early on in Opticos, right, even in the early 2000s, we like had a satellite office in Seaside, Florida, and we designed some really beautiful vacation houses. Um, But once again, like that's not our model now. And what we've done over the last 10 years in particular is say, hey, we're going to demonstrate that we can deliver good design at attainable price points. And we're going to deliver good design through more of a production model of of delivery, right? Because Daybreak was built, sorry, the Muse homes were built by one of the largest builders in the Salt Lake City region. And prior to that, we had never worked with a production builder, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, but we were like, hey, here's an opportunity to make a difference and to do this at scale. And so... I mean, Kevin, you know this, and we were talking about this 25 years ago when we were working on some of these projects is like, how do you dial up or down the architecture or where do you spend the money? Like the, the Muse homes are like the most simple boxes and simple roof forms. And that's, that's where our client gets efficiency. And it's just a, the proportions are good. The window proportions are good. Hey, guess what? It has vinyl windows, which like 15 years ago I was allergic to. <laughs> if 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 you can you can work around those things and put details in just the right places. And so um and the 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 site planning becomes more important, right? Right. Um, because you're you're part of the value you're creating is the placemaking. And you're differentiating through placemaking, you're differentiating through typology, right? Because all of our projects over the last 10 years is our clients deliver them and they're unlike anything else on the market. And so they don't have any competition. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and in, even in, um, in the Prairie Queen project, like it started with 
thoughtfulness in unit plans that were based on a module that we could swap unit plans in and out of the same building footprint as the project gets built. Um, uh, a mix of massing and typology that had sort of, you know, wider frontage, narrower frontage, you know, gables versus hips. Um, but those were executed at a really, uh, Jerry ran those at a buck 20 a square foot rent rents in wow. his pro forma, which is wow. really low compared to any other market we've worked in. And so we had to be really thoughtful about how do we get good architecture, but, um, not break the bank, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in in that sort of a, a spectrum, and so, you know, some people might look at the architecture and go like, "Oh man, like they they blew that detail or this detail," uh, but like the the neighborhood feels great. <laughs> like mm-hmm. people love it. Um, the last time I was out there, which was about a year ago, like people had occupied the porches and personalized the porches, like you know, banners and seating and you know, all the little tchotchkes that people put mm-hmm. on their porches. And, um, uh, and, and so, uh, it's, it's like, how do you deliver good design at attainable price points is a really good challenge for all of us. And I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of been a transition in our practice to challenge ourselves mm-hmm. to deliver good design at, at, at attainable price points. Yeah, so I think it's, it, it, but it's really important. It would be fascinating probably to do a, a walkthrough uh, on that project with you and Jerry and just talk about all the different ways that you look to uh, achieve efficiencies uh, in the, from the design standpoint so that, um, so that he could keep the costs in line. Uh, but you still obviously were delivering the neighborhood amenity, which is really yeah. the, the major thing that you were hoping would sell. Yeah, and variety, variety, right? Yeah. Variety in, in in form and scale and materials, right? Um, but it's all built out of hardy, mm-hmm. um, you know, various applications of hardy panels, hardy horizontal siding. Um, but um, it it feels it feels great, and it's performing super well. And you know, in cul de sac, um, because the the urban pattern and the typology is so driven by the desert extreme desert climate it's kind of its own little um design exercise for sure like we wouldn't do that in very many other places in the u.s but um we challenged ourselves to see how simple the architecture could be because you know the buildings are eight feet apart there's Mm -hmm. a you know public paseo that's eight feet wide so um the buildings just need to be fabric buildings um they need to activate and define the the public spaces, but um, if you look at that architecture, it's um, super, super simple. And obviously, there's precedent for that. Um, whether it be the Barrio Viejo in Tucson, or you know, Egyptian urbanism, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and architecture historically, and so it's it's uh, it feels really good. Um, and I think it'll only get better as the the landscape gets put in, but the spaces feel really good right now mm-hmm. and even under construction. So it's, it's exciting. Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and make sure we have links uh, to all those projects in the show notes uh, in case people haven't seen them, everything from Daybreak yeah. to Prairie Queen to Cul-de-Sac and, and others. So uh, they're all really different and, and, and interesting efforts. And I think I would also, uh, for anybody listening who isn't really familiar with the work of people in the Urban Guild or the Congress for the New Urbanism, I would put a shameless plug in um, now because I, 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 I have felt like throughout my career, I, there's so much that you touched on that it's like it, um, it resonates with me because uh, so much within our profession, within the architecture profession, there's always been this, uh, 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 I don't know a better way to say it other than sort of a snobbish, you know, look down on like suburban development and not getting involved with builders and developers it's like a way to maintain like uh, your status as well i just don't get involved you know in, in all that and, and i think what you've done and what other people in the cnu have done over years to say well we think this is a problem we're actually going to get involved we're going to try to work with builders we're going to work with developers to try to solve these problems and, and understand their language uh, yep. and and try to build places that have the walkable character to it. And I, I just, I so admire that and people who do it. 
And uh, I, I think it's it's great that you all have done some of that on your projects. Yeah, and it's it's like uh, from a business model perspective, like we could be making a lot more money doing working for one type of client on one type of project. Um, mm -hmm. So we kind of make it hard for ourselves and we don't have a typical client, <laughs> yeah. right? It's like, who, who wants to innovate? Who's knocking at our door? Um, and uh, so it keeps it exciting. And I think that, you know, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, uh, interviews with Rick Rubin the last mm -hmm. couple of weeks uh, because he just released this book called The Creative Act. And mm -hmm. I've been amazingly, I've been fascinated by his whole approach and his story. And I think part of this is he talked, he talked about the reason he was able to do what he did with the music industry and introducing hip hop to the masses was he didn't know any better. Yeah. Like he didn't have to unlearn the way of producing a record or creating a, you know, recording business. And I feel like, like, because I was fortunate enough to be trained in all of this, in the right way of good urbanism. Like I didn't have to unlearn like the wrong way of doing things. Like a lot of people have to, yeah. you know, and, um, he, he said something really super interesting, which was like, you shouldn't play the cards that people think you're going to play or should play. You should play the cards that you want to play. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like, you know, from the very start of our practice and even the work we did, with you and, and others early on is like, we were, we were like challenging the status quo, right. And just doing things different. And that, that was necessary and continues to still be necessary of like, we're not afraid to try to do something differently because that's what it, that's what it, it's going to take to address our attainable, attainable housing issues to address to meet the demand for walkable urbanism to get our cities, our small towns prepared to accommodate, right. The, the people that want to be living there. So it's, it's, um, a super, super interesting, super inspiring. Yeah. I, so I, I, I feel like I could go into a whole nother topic here with you related to form based codes, but, um, yeah. I know we're going to come up uh, on our time here pretty quickly, but I do want to yeah. ask you, um, if we just go back to the earlier discussion about uh, like Isla Vista, when, when we worked there, when you did that project, yep. um, which I remember as a, as a really fun charrette. And yeah. uh, um, I, I think uh, one of the more enjoyable parts that I'll confess to is how we got that really awful architect fired who was working for the <laughs> university, uh, producing some god awful housing. Um, but I Think back to that and, and the work that you did, and you said, you know, a lot has evolved and changed uh, with that. How, um, what, what has the impact of that been? And what, what have you seen happen as a result of working in a code in, in that situation? Are there, uh, are there, were there specific lessons just from that effort uh, that you carry forward today in your form-based code work? Yeah, I think, I think part of it was that, um, I think a lot of cities and a lot of planners get caught up in the graphics and they just slap graphics on top of an otherwise conventional code that really didn't think be, it wasn't thoughtful about what the metrics actually needed to be to deliver urbanism. And it might look like a code that you wrote or a code that we wrote or one of our colleagues wrote, but it doesn't actually have the DNA to deliver urbanism. And, and actually what happened with our Isla Vista code is because it was so new and foreign is the planning staff took all the graphics out of it and just made it a, a word-based um, text-based code. And like, we were pretty disappointed at the time, but it delivered the right metrics. And there's actually been quite a bit of new development over the last 20 years under that code. So, um, you know, I think it's uh, our, our coding practice, um, we've really decided to focus at the, the county and the regional scale in our more recent work. And um, this, this, the seeds of this were really planted 10 plus years ago when we were working on a, a shared code for Beaufort County, South Carolina that the county and several other smaller unincorporated jurisdictions ended up using. And then our um, work in Cincinnati, which was a a citywide form-based code that was applied to pre-identified sort of walkable urban place types. And 
most recently we rewrote a, we call it a zoning toolkit. Um, seems to resonate with people for Marin County, which won the Driehaus Form-Based Code Award this year. That was, is now, it was written to be used by the county and 11 different jurisdictions within the county. And almost nobody thought this was going to be successful. Um, even the planning directors who met every other week were very skeptical at the beginning and it's now adopted by the county and adopted by i think two or three other jurisdictions and five others are in the process of of implementing it Hmm. and what resonated with the planners the decision makers in the community is when we when we showed them our analysis of the, the urban form and the places that exist and sort of basically talked about how San Anselmo may be different from Mill Valley in some ways, but they're shared characteristics that we could code as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now we're t- taking that same approach. We are hired by uh, ABAG, who's the regional planning organization here in the Bay Area, to apply the same approach to the entire Bay Area. Mm-hmm. So we're in the middle of drafting that, sort of a place-based zoning uh, toolkit. And then we're also doing that in the Puget Sound region, um, specifically for missing middle scale residential. Um, and so our, our coding practice has always evolved as we work on different projects. And just, just before coming on our in, onto this podcast today, I was like looking over the shoulder of one of my teammates going like, what is that? Like, I haven't even seen that yet. And they're like, oh, this is the Puget Sound place types documentation. I'm like, oh, that looks fantastic and it had it had evolved since the last time i saw it applied which is great to see so i have a really talented team so i'm i'm excited about that but it's um what's really strange still is like the form-based code is a term that some planners just it gets them up in arms Mm -hmm. like you just use the word and like we're like so we we sometimes have to be like okay like we don't care what you call it (laughs) like don't call it anything, just call it the right, this is the best zoning to deliver what you want in your community. And so we've had to step away a little bit actually from calling it form-based coding in a lot of places. And like, that's fine. Like, I don't, I don't care what, we don't care what you call it, but the methodology is still the same. Right. And um, we actually, uh, we had a phone call the other day with a, a group of planning directors. I'm not actually not going to say for which project. And, and one of the directors was like, this, this will never work. This is for greenfield sites, flat, flat lots, regular shapes and sizes of lots. And, you know, what was great is one of the other planning directors said, you know what, I looked at what these, the Opticos team did in Marin County, and we're actually already applying what they did in Marin County. So we think this is a great approach. So like, we're not having to make the, the argument in a lot of those instances is other people stepping in and saying like, okay, you don't like this. Well, you don't actually have to use this. This is a toolkit that only those who choose to use it can use it. Um, so anyway, that was a long answer. No, that's, um, fine. that's good. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to talk about here. I think, yeah. uh, I, I think at some point we'll, we'll have to do this again. And I'd love, we could probably spend a whole hour just talking about form-based codes and, and, yeah. you know, some it's, of our... it's obviously, it's really important and, yeah. um, it's, there's been some progress. There's been some progress in, um, sort of support for the concept, but there's still a lot of pushback. Yeah. And um, and we've had this long running discussion about scaling it, you know, how does it scale and, and everything else. So I think we could, we could probably dive deep on that. Um, well, and that's, that's why we decided to focus on these regional toolkits because yeah. like we're a pretty small practice still. We're, we're like 25 plus or minus a couple people, but like if we can do a zoning toolkit for a region that, 15, 20 in the Bay Area could be like 70 or 80 jurisdictions could use, like that's a way better use of our limited capacity than to like get caught up in Austin, Texas code rewrite for six years, (laughs) you know, and then it gets, it gets caught up in a lawsuit and eight years later, it's still not adopted, you know, like, um, so it's like, that's, that's where we can maximize our impact. And that's also why we decided to do the the licensing of the prototypes to really just let our impact spread yeah. beyond the what a 25 person firm can can do sort of on a one project basis at a time yeah 
yeah, it, it, it also makes me think about the, you know, the trajectory of how accessory dwelling units has gone from, you know, a crazy radical thing to now becoming sort of the, the, the hip thing that uh, most cities really want to take on. But, you know, my goodness, it's been 25 years, you know, we've been yeah. toiling it, to just try to get people to accept the notion that those should be by right for yeah. most houses. And it's, I tell, I tell cities, um, you should, you should support ADUs, but don't get caught up in just an ADU discussion. Cause if right. you're going to get, you're going to fall behind if you haven't already. Right. It's like, yeah. that should be a no brainer, like yeah. jump to fourplex, <laughs> like cottage court, um, and ADUs. But, um, uh, I know we're running out of time, but, um, a super interesting project we're working on for a developer is an infill site in Seattle. And Seattle just created a new small lot residential zoning district. And then citywide, they're allowing ADUs to be sold separate from the primary units. Mm -hmm. And so what was really cool is through this project is, for example, you can do attached ADUs, you can do stacked ADUs, you can do detached ADUs, but they have a cap of a thousand square feet. So what their system is doing is it's, it's creating incentive for a developer to build a small for sale unit in that ADU that gets sold separate from the primary unit. So it's delivering attainability in a really super creative way. So to me, that's like, that's the next iteration yeah. of what, where ADUs need to go is just like incentivizing the, 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 sell, the sale of the smaller unit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll have to take a look at that as well. It's interesting. Um, well, let's stop there, Dan, and okay. and, and wrap this up. Um, I do I do like to ask my guests uh, at the end of the podcast. Uh, you know, this is the Messy City podcast, so I like to ask yes. if there's like a favorite place, a city, a neighborhood that comes to mind when you think about when you hear that term and think about something that probably has a lot of those missing middle characteristics to it uh, and probably developed more organically. Uh, what what comes to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, I think any good city is a messy city. Any good neighborhood's a little bit messy. Um, when you start to clean it up too much, it becomes sterile, right? In a, a subdivision. So, I mean, the the first place that came to mind for me was um, the Shoreditch neighborhood in East London, and um, I had the pleasure to discover it about 15 years ago when I was first. We were first doing work with the Prince's Foundation. Um, and their offices are based there. And it was just this, uh, had historically kind of been disinvested in, but the, as with many places, what brought it back was just this really creative artist community and culture. And still today has some of the most amazing um, street art of any place in the country. Hmm. Um, and just uh, the most unique, unexpected, experiences as you're as you're wandering through these places i call it like the we often talk about a series of um theatrical events like that you just like uh you turn a corner and something unexpected it's a public space or it's a big mural or it's like a, a street market or a food vendor is is happening and um that that neighborhood um uh was the first one that came to mind when when you sort of the asked me about the messy city and it's uh just like every other place over the course of the last 15 years it's a little bit less messy than it was 15 <laughs> years ago for yeah. better or worse but um I, I think that's uh there's just an energy in those types of places and uh a vibrancy that the messiness uh is is a, is a part of and reinforces yeah that's terrific well dan thanks so much for doing this uh, i'll look forward to getting you on here again uh, in the future, maybe at uh, some point later this year. Are you, uh, are you going to be attending the Congress for New Urbanism this year? Unfortunately, I will not be there this year. Okay. Um, there will be others from Opticos that are going to go, but um, I have this Missing Middle Road tour this year that um, uh, has a lot of speaking events and um, okay. sort of it, it sort of got some things scheduled at the same time as CNU is happening. So unfortunately, I won't, won't be able to make it. All right. Well, we'll do we'll do a future one, but uh, yep. I'd love to have you back on. Thanks again, and uh, take care. Thanks for having me, Kevin.